Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, I'm going to apologize before we get into this, Chris, because I've lost my voice a little bit. You know, I'm a football coach. Uh, and sometimes that just happens, man. It's part of the game. So y'all have to deal with me today. My voice is a little, a little funny. I'm going to try to keep it, keep it going. I'm drinking my water and all that stuff, but, uh, bear with me today. All right. Oh, that's good. I was going to ask you if you were, if you were feeling well. Yeah, I'm feeling all right. But yeah, my, my voice is kind of breaking, cracking up on me after uh, yesterday's practice. So, uh, yeah. We'll get through it, though. We'll get through it. As you guys know, last week uh, we talked about the God Gap, which was an article written by David French in the Dispatch. And after that, my friend David French hit me up. He said, hey, man, why don't you join me on my Good Faith podcast? And so I joined uh, David French on his Good Faith podcast. We talked about the God Gap. We talked about kind of being politically homeless. We talked about my debate for the Gospel Coalition. It was a really good conversation. So check that out. He's usually, you know, he usually has a co-host, but he allowed me to come on because Chang, his co-host, was uh, out. And so I was glad to join a really good conversation uh, between me and David French. So check that out. Uh, but, Chris, you know what it is, man. As always, we got a lot to talk about, man. Any, anything you want to bring up in this introduction? Anything I've been on your mind? Hey, man, we are just trying to uh, make it through the summer out here in Chicago. It's it's crazy stuff. So pray for our city continually. Yeah, I mean, I saw something where in the last year, like 900 police officers had resigned and then there were like only 40 who had joined. What's do you know of the issue there? or What's going on? I mean, it is a very, very difficult job uh, being a police officer and uh, even more so in the city of Chicago. And I think in an environment where you feel like less and less people are going to allow you to actually take any risk in doing that job. Uh, I mean, it's just not very appealing. So people are getting out and not a lot of people are getting in. Yeah. In certain cities, it is not a whole lot of incentive, you know, not great pay. Uh, you see, you know, we've seen videos recently where even little kids disrespecting the police. I think one thing we all can do in support of our police, and we know not every policeman is a good guy, but I believe most of them are the great majority are, even when there are some things that need to change in our institutions in general. It show some respect, man. Show show some love for the ones who are trying to do it right. It's not an easy job. They put their lives on the line. And just that respect, in my opinion, goes a long way for somebody who is sacrificing a lot for the community when they do it the right way. So I 1000 percent agree. Yeah, man. So as always, I want to give a shout out to uh, our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. But it's time to get into it. So you know what it is. Grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Listen, on the Church Politics Podcast, we do our best to be honest about America and American history. We won't romanticize American history to act like it was all freedom, apple pie and fireworks. But we also won't pretend that extraordinary ideas, innovations and institutions haven't sprung up from the sacrifices of the people in this country. Our ancestors, for, for one, worked too hard and made too many sacrifices for us to deny that reality. 
that's nothing extraordinary on our part or nothing valiant on our part, I should say. But we do try to have a truthful witness. We try to call balls and strikes and make sure that we're not serving any narrative more than we're serving a God of love and truth. Now, while not all America's military endeavors have been wise and righteous, and I think many of them have, the men and women who put their lives on the line to serve our armed forces must be commended and taken care of after they serve. That's not much to ask. Sadly, America has a history of not showing the appropriate regard or care for some veterans. Many black veterans, for instance, and throughout history, came home after fighting in world wars and things of that nature as second-class citizens, and they had limited liberty when they got back to where they were from, for, to where they were fighting for. They were often fighting for freedom abroad that they never enjoyed at home. This is after black leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois at times encouraged black men to go to war in hopes that it prove our loyalty to this country and improve the black plight in the homeland. That oftentimes was not the result. That wasn't the case. In addition to that type of mistreatment, the state of veterans affairs, our VA hospitals and so on, has been, to say the least, subpar. Uh, There's been situations where some servicemen and women can't even get to VA care centers because they live too far away. Veterans have had to wait months or even years, years to get the care that they desperately need. VA doctors learn uh, earn less than uh, other physicians and the backlog to get into the hospitals and get certain treatments is just ridiculous. Not only that, the VA has long been plagued with fraudulent spending practices. In the view of all that history and things that have been going on for too long, we now have men and women who served in Iraq and Afghanistan who've been exposed to what they're calling toxic burn pits. That's right. Toxic burn pits. You see, the U.S. military in some of those conflicts and in those areas would burn trash and waste to get rid of it. It was really just a practical concern. We got to do something with this trash. Hey, let's burn it. They'd basically create giant dumpster fires almost every day. So there would be smoke and there would be fire from trash burning very close to where the troops were. Now, reports say that sometimes they there'd be asbestos, there'd be fuel, there'd be ammunition burning in this these pits. And early on, some officials have reported that they warned that the pits were unhealthy for the soldiers. But nothing was done initially. And it's believed that over three million soldiers have been exposed to these toxic burn pits. Early symptoms were things like coughing or kind of sneezing black stuff out of your nose. Uh, Some believe that it is also linked to constrictive bronchiolitis, which is an incurable lung disease. And also to brain cancer, which I believe, Chris, was the cause of death for Bo Biden, who was uh, President Biden's son. Now, with all this going on, vets struggled to get the help that they needed from the VA. One of the problems that they had was that the, the burden was on the vets to prove the link between burn pit exposure and their illness. This sometimes meant paying out of pocket for blood tests and paying out of pocket for doctors. Even after going through all that, listen to this, even after going through all that and paying out of pocket, three fourths of the claims were being denied at some point. Part of the problem is that the government is that government researchers have yet to establish a causal link between the pits and the illness. So vets have suffered while the science tries to catch up with their reality. Claims, again, were being denied. Most of claims were being denied. And then. Paperwork was taking forever to be reviewed. So even those who hadn't been denied were just waiting to hear anything at all from the government. And this is why we have legislators. This is one of those situations where legislators should promptly step in and do their jobs. And in this instance, I think it took a little bit too long, but they have done something to some extent. Two pieces of legislation have already passed to address the issue. One uh, required the Department of Defense to implement mandatory training uh, for all medical providers under the department um, on health effects of the burn pit. So they, you know, they had to make sure that they did more training so that they would know what the effects of these pits would be. The other expanded the burn pit registry. So anybody that thought they had a sickness 
due to the burn pit would go online and they could register. But it was really not. I mean, it was just a terrible uh, system. People couldn't understand it. People couldn't get in and get registered in the way they should have. So that's what's already happened. But there's something bigger that need. There's something more that needs to be done. And so at this very moment, the promise to address comprehensive toxics act or the pact act is stalled. It's still pending. Now, this act, it, this act, one of the main things that it would do was lift the burden of proof from the vet, from the vets and create a presumption that the vets who served at cert certain periods in certain areas were exposed. Now, that's really important because remember what I said is the government researchers have, have not established a link between the sickness and the pits. So how in the world can we expect the vets to actually establish that link and have the burden on them to make that to establish that. That's why you have the presumption that under certain circumstances they had been exposed so they can get the help that they need. So that's one of the things that it's doing. It would also codify 25 respiratory illnesses and cancers linked to burn pits and make sure the VA provided toxic exposure screenings and expanded training. OK, now. This was actually passed out of the Senate in a bipartisan manner in June, but then it was sent back to the Senate once it was in the House for some technical issues. After that time, even though at some point there was some type of bipartisan consensus, but when it got back, Republicans uh, wanted to pull a provision, a Democratic provision that would call for $400,000 billion in mandatory spending over 10 years that they would say was unrelated to veterans. OK, so what Senator Toomey, who's a, uh, a senator, a Republican senator, did is he offered an amendment to put parameters on the four hundred billion dollars. Right. He wanted to say, I don't want this to go to, to things that aren't related to veterans. But now Democrats are coming back and saying, well, if you add his amendment, then that would actually lead to the rationing of health care for vets. All right. So you have these folks going back and forth. But the, but the, at the end of the day, nothing has been passed. Democrats say that Republicans are standing in the way because they're talking about this budget problem. Republicans are saying, no, you guys, you know, you guys shouldn't have, have never added the budget thing. And we could have moved on uh, to begin with. So you have this back and forth. I'll be honest, it's somewhat hard to tell who's at fault, even though it does look like Republicans are holding this back. Is it you know, is this budget issue substantial enough to, to push back? Maybe so. I mean, one thing people have to realize, too, is even when somebody says, hey, we're putting uh, such and such amount of money towards this or that. Well, where's the money going? How is it going to be administered? What are the, the guidelines to, to, you know, to how the money is used? That Those things do matter. Right. So sometimes when we say, hey, this is a great bill. It's going through some good. Why are you stopping it? Someone might have a good reason and saying, well, yeah, it's a lot of money, but they could be wasted or it could go to other things if we don't do it the right way. And so when we look at policy, we do have to look at more than just the broad terms of the policy. You really have to get into the specifics. Uh, but, Chris, what, what are your thoughts on this uh, on this whole interaction? Yeah, I mean, I think if, first I'll just say if you back up uh, and and look at what we do in veterans uh, affairs and caring for our veterans overall, uh, it is really horrible uh, in this country. I have very close, I, won't, I guess I won't call it firsthand experience, but my dad, you know, was an Air Force veteran uh, and he, he died of, of lung cancer. You know, I just remember the the whole ordeal. I was, um, of, of the siblings, the one that kind of cared for him, moved in with him and that kind of thing. And just thinking of the ordeal of trying to track down care and get doctor's appointments and uh, all that type of thing at the VA hospital uh, here in Chicago. I mean, it was just, it was poorly organized. It was not the kind of thing uh, that you would expect if we really honored our fighting men and women in this country. Uh, and so it, it's, it's an overall problem. And then, you know, when you look at this particular issue with burn pits for this new generation of, of uh, fighting men and women, right? Because, you know, I'm talking about my dad, uh, my brother also served two tours in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. As far as we know, doesn't have any burn pit issues, but certainly uh, many of the people who he has come to know and uh, become friends with uh, are, are caught up in this situation. And so the main thing that you want to see is something get done uh, so that folks who at this point have been um, home for, you know, a 
a good amount of time. I mean, I, I, I can't call the years off the top of my head, but I mean, my, my brother has been home for a long time uh, and folks are still trying to access this care. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's unconscionable that generation after generation of soldiers, you talked about folks, you know, black folks coming back from fighting world wars. Um, you look at the Vietnam generation, uh, my dad's generation, and now this generation, our own generation. It's, it's incredibly frustrating that we can't get this overall system operating better. Uh, and, and this burn pit issue is, is much worse. So when I look at the process, my main thing, you know, like you said here, we try to call balls and strikes. And my qualm with the process, and particularly with Republicans in this particular process, uh, is that while I haven't had the chance to look, and I haven't seen either side present uh, a detailed list of what that $400 billion actually is and where it goes so that folks can evaluate it on their own, um, what we do know is the process, right? And that we know that the $400 billion was added in Senate Foreign Affairs, passed out of Senate Foreign Affairs, went to the House of Representatives, gained Republican votes over the first version of the bill. I think got 19 additional Republican votes uh, in the House the second time uh, and then went back to the Senate. And so if, if it was that kind of a thing, why did Republicans support it in Senate Foreign Affairs? Why did more Republicans support it in the House? And, and, and so is this actually retaliation, you know, for Schumer breaking his promise on, you know, kind of a reconciliation package, right? I, I think that if, if we were going to get so caught up on this $400 billion, it should have happened in Senate Foreign Affairs or in the House vote, not after coming out of the House, into a Senate committee, out of the Senate committee, back to the House, and passing the House with more Republican support back to the Senate, and now all of a sudden, you know, $400 billion is is the thing that can allow this um, this spending to go forward for, for veterans. So, again, I don't know in detail what the $400 billion is, but I do know the process, and it gives me uh, – pause in terms of the genuineness of the of the claims on on the part of those who are holding up the bill at this point. Yeah, and I'll say this, uh it's hard to judge intentions. And me and me and Chris, you know, are often trying to make sure that we're not going too far in in kind of saying what somebody's intentions were. But let me say this. This looks fishy. And if indeed any Republican is is holding this up because they're mad at Schumer when it comes to something else namely the reconciliation deal and this stuff, some stuff we'll talk about in a few, that is completely unacceptable. This is far too important to be playing partisan games with this bill. You, I mean, just listen to some of the stories of people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting just to get the, I mean, guys, we're not talking about anything extra here. Just to get the kind of medical uh, uh, help that anybody would expect after you've given your all to a country. No one would expect until you've gone through it that you would literally have to wait months or year. When your average person that has health care can get in and out pretty quick, if you're depending on the VA, can you imagine waiting years because there's a backlog to get in? Can you imagine, can you understand what it does that you actually had people in these positions who were fraudulently, fraudulently spending money that was supposed to go to help veterans? This is a stain on our country and how much we, how patriotic we are. If you want to talk about being a patriot, you want to talk about love of country and love of countrymen, and then we treat the folks who actually put their lives on the line like this, we would actually hold something up for even a day or another hour because we have some partisan back and forth that we want to settle some score. I pray that is not what's happening right now. And I can't be sure. But I think Chris did a very good job, and I didn't want to go there just in the first outline, but I think Chris did a very good job of saying why this looks a little bit fishy. And one thing I know is that when you are in the game, when you're the legislators and you're going back and forth, everything becomes, can become about the game. And you're so interested in making sure that you get back at somebody and you go back, that you lose the, you lose the feel for what people are really going through and you end up playing games with stuff that you should not be playing with. 
And I think it's up to voters to send the message that this absolutely is not the time for that and that there will be consequences if that is indeed the case. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like you said, it is it is fishy. You certainly have, uh, you know, in legislation times when people stick stuff in at the 11th hour. Uh, it just doesn't seem like this is that. Um, you know, I, I don't totally absolve Democrats because, again, I haven't seen a Democrat lay out the $400 billion and say this is what it is and this is why it's very, very necessary. Um, at the end of the day, I think you just want to see something happen for these veterans. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm of the mind that the the Republican opposition, it seems real fishy. Um and, you know, like I said, because we want to call balls and strikes, and this is not trying to say uh, apples to apples here because I don't think that it is, but there is the opportunity for Democrats to say this $100 billion is not essential to the goal of the PACT Act. Uh, and so we're going to pull that and fight for that another day and get this done for veterans. Whoever blinks first doesn't matter to me. I just want to see uh, something happen for for these folks who, like you said, put everything on the line for this country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we can, you know, we can say it, it, it looks very fishy on the Republican side in this regard, but let's say, let me also say this, the problems that have been happening with the VA have happened through Democrat, Republican, so on, all those administrations, they've all had a chance to do something about it. I think, I think Trump did say he was doing something about it. I haven't gotten an update to say how much that has worked or not. So I'm not casting judgment on that, but for the folks who like to hate for people to say anything about both sides, well, sometimes they're both guilty. And I'm, I, I'm sorry that doesn't help your narrative and lay, put, allow you to put blame on one side, but they are both guilty and liable in this area when it comes to how our veterans have been treated. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. You know it's Justin Gibney and the right reverend. Christopher Butler. We just had a conversation about vets and these burn pits. But now I want to talk about a piece of legislation that's said to be coming pretty soon, but we haven't seen exactly, we don't know exactly when that's going to happen. All right. Maybe it happens before you even hear this within the next day or so. So some of you have been following it, but Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia has been the bane of many Democrats' existence during the, the Biden tenure during the Biden administration. He has refused to commit to voting for some of the administration's biggest legislation. And this is odd for some because he's a Democrat. And so folks expect him as a Democrat to go along with what the administration wants to do, or at very least say, hey, this is reasonable stuff that the administration ran on and that would help your, your constituents. You should go along with it. I'll let you be the judge whether he was right or wrong, but I think you should look at every different instances, right? I think he was right on some, I think he was wrong on some stuff. I think he was right on things like the Equality Act, right? So I think we do need to, rather just just casting one kind of judgment on how he's done altogether, I think we should look at each instance where he may have pushed back on something, okay? Uh, that's just the, the, I think, more intelligent way to go about it. And that's not a defense of Manchin, but I think it's a little more complicated than people uh, might state up front. Well, it appears that Manchin, Schumer, and the Biden administration have come to terms on what was previously called the Build Back Better bill. Now, it's not going to be expensive, as expensive this time around, and it's changed its name. It's now going to be called the Inflation Reduction Act. And we'll get back to that name and, and, and the significance of it a little later. According to the drafters, though, Chris, uh, the act has two main goals. The first goal is to lower health care costs. The second goal is to invest in domestic energy production to curb the effects of climate change. Now, these folks say that the act will do a few things. It says it would make a down payment on, and this is in general, it would make a down payment on deficit reduction to fight inflation. It would invest in domestic energy production and manufacturing. It would produce, it would reduce, excuse me, carbon emissions uh, by around 40% by 2030. Uh, it would uh, it would allow Medicare to negotiate for lower prices for prescription drugs and expand the Affordable Care Act program uh, through 2025. Now, just get a little bit deeper on the health care front. According to Deseret News, the act will allow Medicare to negotiate 
prescription drug prices and set a spending cap of $2,000 annually. The bill will also lower health care premiums for the 13 million Americans insured through the Affordable Care Act for the next three years. Lawmakers claim beneficiaries will save an average of $800 annually. I think that's significant. In regard to the climate, this bill would offer American families tax rebates to buy energy efficient appliances, as well as tax credits for electric or fuel cell vehicles of up to $7,500 if the vehicle is made in the United States. All right. Now, this is a pretty big bill. The question one would ask is, how are they paying for it? And this is the explanation that uh, they would they would give. The, The bill proposes spending $739 billion over the next 10 years, around $300 billion for government uh, spending uh, deficit reduction, $369 billion for uh, clean energy and climate change programs, $69 billion for the Affordable Care Act extension. For the funds, the funds would come from a 15% minimum corporate tax, a 15% minimum corporate tax which a committee on taxation estimates will contribute around $313 billion. The president added that families and individuals making under $400,000 annually will not see an increase in taxes. The rest of the funds will uh, include $288 billion from prescription drug pricing reform, $124 billion from IRS enforcement, and this is an interesting one, IRS enforcement, and $14 billion from a carried interest loophole, all right? So they're closing some loopholes. They're making sure that the uh, IRS is, is, is bringing in more money, and these are the ways that they're going to pay for it. Now, here's the interesting thing, Chris. Some Republicans are saying that this would re- result in a tax increase on the middle class, that prices and taxes and things like that will go up because if you do, one of the arguments I heard was that if you do raise taxes, you know, this 15 percent when it comes to businesses, that's going to be pushed down to, to consumers. All right. So they're saying you're going to pay for that anyway. The other thing is, while this is in, in called the Inflation Reduction Act, a Warden Business School forecast shows that they're saying there would be no real impact on inflation. Right. So they're saying that the name is one thing. The impact is quite another that 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 inflation wouldn't really go up or down based on this particular act. So something to keep in mind. What are your thoughts, Chris? I think it's great that they got together on a piece of legislation um, because I think that's what the legislature should do. Uh, I am a little bit um, worried about calling this thing the Inflation Reduction Act um, because it's really hard to make the argument on the specific things that are in it that is going to decrease inflation. Uh, and so while I agree with the aims of the of the legislation, most of the stuff that's in it I think is good, uh, a couple of things that I, I have some concerns about, but most of it I think is good. Uh, I think that you play fast and loose with the most valuable commodity, uh, an asset that our government has, which is actually the trust of the people, um, because you message it as one thing, uh, and then it has the potential to not have uh, the the kind of impacts that you want, right? So the first thing is that on uh, inflation, most of the stuff, I mean, I think it's great to bring down healthcare costs, uh, but healthcare costs are not driving uh, the current inflation, right? Like that's been driven uh, by the cost of other goods and services, the cost of food, the cost of fuel, uh, that kind of stuff is way up. I think it's great to invest long-term in the environment, but two things. One, long-term investment in the environment uh, is not going to do much uh, about current inflation. Uh, and the things that you talk about doing, you know, you talked about it, Justin, you know, the $7,500 tax credit uh, for buying an electric vehicle or fuel cell vehicle. Uh, but I think the... Um, the cost of an electric vehicle is like up 22% because of inflation, right? So now you're talking about you're getting a $7,500 tax credit for a $50,000 car that you can't afford, right? Because you don't have the $50,000 to buy the car to get the tax credit. Um, and so it's, you know, this is stuff that I think is is good to do. I think it may be a little bit 
disingenuous and, and long-term bad for the country to message it as inflation reduction. Because if you pass it and it doesn't reduce inflation, which it probably won't reduce inflation, then it's just another thing that, you know, the politicians and the government did where they said one thing and it was another and you erode that trust, which um, you and I know because we don't just do politics, right? Like you, you do politics, but we also do leadership at the local level and community. Uh, we do ministry where you're working with people in relationship and trust is even more difficult to build back up than supply chains, right? So I think that is, is really bad practice and we do it often, but I think it's bad practice to play fast and loose uh, with the trust of people. Yeah. And it looks like this was designed, the name of this was designed to get Manchin's vote, right? So he could come back and say, no, what I did is I took enough out of this and changed it enough around enough to where it is lowering inflation, whether it does that or not, you know, whatever, but at least he can go back home and, and say that. And, and I think you're right. Well, I agree with a lot of the stuff that's going on here. I mean, our, our, our uh, healthcare system has to be, I mean, it has to be changed. Something has to happen. Something has to happen with, with uh, climate change too, but it's not just something, right? Like what, what I want people to understand too, is that just because they say they're doing something about an issue doesn't mean it's the right thing. Doesn't mean it's significant enough or hitting the, in the right thing. So I just don't want y'all to get into the idea in watching cable news and all this, that if they're doing something and somebody votes against the something that they're doing, then that makes it, you know, makes it a big issue. We do need to look at the particulars and that's why we talked about particularly what's actually happened. And I think uh, me and Chris have been saying that for, for a long time, you got to pay attention to it and not just to pay attention to the name. Let me tell you something. If you go along with you just go along with the name of a particular bill, man, you'll have no idea what you're voting for. And sadly, I've had conversations with people in Congress that have voted for many of things that they didn't know what was in it. And you would be surprised how often that happens. Chris, you look like you had something to say to add. Yeah, I was just going to say on on even the the healthcare stuff, right? Like the the Republican pushback on uh, negotiating drug prices is something that that you need to look at, right? Because if if you don't have any other constraint, regulation, instruction, or incentive um, for uh, for pharmaceutical companies not to push those lost profits off to other areas of their business and ultimately, um, you know, either see costs go up or at least stay the same um, for consumers that's very likely what they are going to do if you just do this one thing, right? That's that's why, and I, I just bring that up because I was part of the group that was like super working on healthcare uh, back at the beginning, like before, prior to the Obama administration. Um, and so, but, but you can't just do one thing. It's got to be comprehensive because if you do just one thing, it's very likely that you pass that stuff off uh, to consumers. Same thing with IRS enforcement, right? You give $80 billion to the IRS, uh, but you don't have any other instructions, institutional changes. You know, money usually, in my experience, doesn't change what an institution does. It just gives the institution more capacity to do what it's already good at. And right now, the IRS is really good at squeezing working class people. Um, and so you put $80 billion into that operation with no further instruction, no further uh, restrictions, uh, training, changes, nothing, you probably are going to get an IRS that's a lot better at squeezing working class people and not an IRS that suddenly knows how to get um, wealthy folks to pay their fair share. So, Man, yeah, that, that's so true. And first and foremost, pay your taxes. It's, it's not yes. it's not worth going through all that. So we're not we're not advising anyone not to pay their taxes. However, it's usually the people who have more money that can defend themselves against the IRS because the IRS is not always right, number one. And it's usually the people who have more money that can get the lawyers to keep the IRS off their back and make it so it's not worth the time. And so what do they do? Go after the people that don't have the money to get the high, you know, the big attorneys to defend them and get the IRS off their back. That is a problem. And if this turns out being and, and this isn't just we're not saying this is a bad bill altogether. We are just pointing out some of the issues if you don't do it wisely. If this turns out to be an instance where this just means they go harder on people who ain't got already ain't got that much money. then this is not an improvement. Then you end up paying for this bill, which is supposed to help a certain group of people. 
you end up paying for it on their backs, right? Um, and so we really have to be careful about that. And here's maybe we pull in an economist because I'll, I'll say I don't have the expertise to completely answer this. But I do know anytime you talk about raising taxes on businesses, the argument is always, well, we're, they're just going to push that to the consumer. So why do we have any taxes on business at all? You know what I'm saying? At some point, it's like, that still may be the, it still may be the thing that needs to be done, right? And we may need to pull in an economist or somebody like that to say, hey, at a certain rate, it gets to that. But the argument, hey, don't raise taxes on businesses or on wealthy people or on any, on, under any circumstances, because it's always going to come back on you. Just doesn't, you know, seems like it kind of, you know, that didn't pass the blush test with me. Um, and again, we will say this too. Just raising taxes is not necessarily a good thing either, right? Because you got to look how things are being spent. Uh, there's a, it's a lot deeper than just yes or no. But, but that, that argument always kind of gets to me. It's just like a, you know, the argument that can always be used to never do in, never raise taxes on anybody, even if the, the country desperately needs it. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I just agree with you. I think we should get somebody who's like uh, more of a, an economist uh, on to talk about it, because I think there is a way to, to raise taxes uh, on businesses. I think it is about what taxes you're raising. Um, that's what, you know, when you look at this particular legislation, you have the 15% minimum tax. That's one of those things that is, you know, is it's so broad that a lot of it might get passed off. Again, if it doesn't have anything else to go with it to say, here's what you can't do to avoid it. Um, and then more training and changing of how the IRS exists in the world to enforce these laws. Like it's got to be comprehensive. Um, but then there are better things like I, I really like closing the corporate, uh, I mean, the carried interest loophole, right? Because that's targeted. It's in one specific industry. So you, you might not get like this whole like blanket, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, backlash and carried interest loophole, you know, is, is really hard for, you know, you know, the financial market folks to to pass it off because they're not selling goods, you know, direct to people. So but I think we should have a conversation like that about um, the economy with like a real economist who can dig into it. Uh, but I think the exhortation is strong here, which is don't just look at a bill called Inflation Reduction Act uh, and think that because it's called that, that that is what it's going to do. And, you know, if there are folks who are listening to this podcast who are actually involved in the Congress and the Senate, you know, I just urge us that we level with people because, again, I think on the whole, the bill's trying to do some good things. Uh, and if we go out and say we're doing these good things and we're doing the good things that we can get done, given the restraints of Senator Manchin, the close, you know, uh, uh, divide in the Senate. We're doing what we can do. I think people are intelligent enough um, to embrace that more than going out and telling folks that we're getting ready to pass this legislation that's going to heal the world and solve all of our problems and bring inflation down. Uh, and then it doesn't do that because that's what erodes trust in the process. I don't think that that uh, President Biden came into his administration with this broad mandate to like revision the country, right? He narrowly won the election. So I think a, a presidency that was like helping people walk through this difficult time uh, in, in terms of leadership and being upfront and honest about doing the things to improve the current situation and build better for the future. I think that would be a better conversation to be leading with, in my personal opinion. But yeah. I guess ain't nobody asking. Yeah, well, they are asking you. That's why you got. That's why you got thousands of people who listen to you weekly, my my friend. Uh, but listen to this. You also mentioned the loophole, which I've been, you know, I've been asking for that loophole to be closed closed for some time. Um, here's the thing, though. Some people are saying, and this, you know, may depend on how deep the gamesmanship is here. But some people are saying it doesn't fully close that loophole. And there's been a suggestion. I don't know this, but we'll keep watching. There's been a suggestion that they put that in there, not fully closing the loophole, but so that they could get Cinema, Senator Cinema on onto the bill by having her be the one that that pushed that out of the conversation. 
So we'll see if that happens. These are all whispers. This is what happens when, you know, legislation is on the line. People say this is happening. That's happening. They still do need cinema's vote. So, uh, you know, for some of the other legislation, it was cinema and mansion that were going against it, who are Democrats. Now it looks like they have mansion. The question is whether they have cinema. Now, maybe we'll find out within, you know, the next few hours. And you guys will know by the time you hear this. Uh, but that is the question that that's there. And all these techniques that we're talking about, we don't know. We're not sitting there. We're not in these people's heads. But they are te- techniques that have been used before. Right. So changing a name, adding something in there that, you know, somebody's going to come in and kick out. So you, you so they can claim that they you know worked hard and got that out of there. But the whole time you knew it wasn't going to be in there. All that stuff happens. And so this is another reason why we, me and Chris tell you. Don't just look at what you see on the surface. There's a lot of other things going on behind the scenes and we help you. We're trying to help you understand some of the some of that stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the And Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Have some good conversations today. Now, something we talked about, I think, Chris, uh, maybe a few weeks ago, maybe it was about a month ago, actually, I can't I can't remember, was that, you know, a lot of Democrats were making what I think is a valid argument that you had these pro-Trump Republicans who believed in the big lie and that if you had people like this in office, you could end up with a constitutional crisis where you have uh, governors or other folks who are Trump sycophants who just refuse to to make sure that there's a, you know, safe transfer, you know, a, a transfer of power in the way that it should be, who don't want to admit he lost. And, and so they do all these things to cause this constitutional crisis, I think. And it's not only Democrats that have said that. I know some conservatives who feel like, yeah, you get the wrong people in office. This could be a problem. Well, so you make that legitimate argument, but then people take a look behind the scenes and you have the Democrat Congressional uh, Committee actually funding some far right wing candidates who are beating, you know, in the Republican primary, who are beating the more moderate folks, or at least the more the folks who aren't going along with Trump. They might not want to be called moderate, but the folks who aren't going along with Trump are being beat, beaten by these right right wing candidates who in many instances were funded in part by Democrats. Why would Democrats fund a right-wing candidate? Because they know that if they're up against a far-right candidate and a uh, Trump-loving candidate, that's probably going to be the candidate that's easier to beat in the the general election. So if I fund your, your craziest candidate, I get to go against the easiest person to beat. That's the assumption, and that's that's worked in the past, right? But it doesn't always work. So you see in Pennsylvania in their governor's race, for instance, you have this right wing candidate who actually won the primary and probably won't win the general, but could win the general. And that's one of those states that if something happened where it was a close election, let's say between Biden and Trump. That guy would have a lot of power to cause a constitutional crisis. I think if I'm not mistaken, in Pennsylvania, he even gets to choose the secretary of state. But we have folks on that on one side of their mouth are saying, I'm so concerned about democracy. I'm so concerned about democracy. And then saying, well, we just have to win. And in fact, here's what Nancy Pelosi had to say when asked about 
the funding of these type of candidates. The political decisions that are made uh, out there are made in furtherance of our winning the election, Pelosi told reporters during a news conference Friday. We think that the contrast between Democrats and Republicans as they are now is so drastic that we have to, we have to win. So basically, really all the Republicans are the same. And our main thing is we have to win. I think that's a terrible explanation. I think that's unethical, but I would love to hear what you have to say, uh, Chris. I mean, I think that the speaker knows that it doesn't make any sense because Speaker Pelosi is a, is a, a, a highly, highly intelligent woman. And that sentence doesn't even make any sense. Um, you cannot ask us to believe on the one hand that these folks represent an existential threat uh, to uh, our democracy, which I will level with you and say, I think in some cases, some of them really do. But you can't say, argue that on one hand and then on the other hand, spend like tens of millions of dollars helping these folks win primary elections. Because if they represent an existential threat to our democracy, the number one goal is to make sure that they don't win. The best way to make sure that somebody has the only way really to make sure that somebody has a zero percent chance of winning a general election is to make sure that they do not win the primary election. Because as soon as they win that primary, the, the chances of them winning the general uh, go up. And if in even one case, this this tactic um, gives us a, a governor or a secretary of state um, who actually precipitates a constitutional crisis, that's a huge big deal. But even if some of these House members, right? end up winning their um, their general elections and beating the Democrat, which in, in, in this environment we can't say is, is like impossible uh, because a lot of times in, in election campaigns, it really has to do more with, with passion and political talent than kind of policy positions, right? So just because somebody has, um, you know, out there policy positions doesn't mean that they can't win the election. If they have uh, the right kind of money, if they have the right kind of political talent, connection to the community, all types of things that unfortunately come before uh, your policy positions when it comes to winning uh, an election. And I do think that it's just playing with fire. You, you almost are certain to have one or two governors or secretaries of state that are just going to make 2024 a very, you know, scary moment. Um, you might have some folks in the, in the House of Representatives and the Senate who won't be able to help govern. And we got to remember that, like, that's the goal of the election, right, is to get together a group of people who can then serve the whole United States by governing the country. And so we shouldn't do things in our elections uh, that can ultimately make it more difficult to govern, which I think that this this is that it, it will necessarily make it more difficult to govern because it's it's unreasonable to think that you can do this, especially as big as Democrats have done it across secretaries of state, across gubernatorial primaries, across congressional races, Senate races. You can't do it that big. And then you go and win every one of those elections in the general. And. And so you are necessarily making it more difficult to, to govern and serve the United States, which, in my view, is uh, is bad and inexcusable. Yeah. And, and just I didn't I, I said a name, but I didn't necessarily explain it. So what Pelosi is being asked about is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is one of the organizations who said, hey, we'll fund right wing candidates just so we can win. Uh constitutional crisis, uh, crisis of democracy aside, right? We'll do that. But this has also been uh, the tactic, is also being a tactic used by other democratic organizations as well. So these are organizations that, so the DCCC wouldn't fund a governor, right? They just deal with congressional races. But there are other uh, democratic organizations that do fund governor's races that are funding some of these other candidates. I do want to, I do want to be very uh, clear on that. This, I mean, how cynical can you get, right? As you said it, if this is really the threat that they say it is, 
then you have to take that serious. You can't just say, yeah, the Republicans are all so bad. It doesn't really matter. We have to win. Well, we've, we've seen that's not necessarily the case, that there are, are very big differences. You have the guy in who's now in the general in Pennsylvania, and then you have Governor Brian Kemp in, in Georgia. You may not like Brian Kemp, right? But you can't say that he didn't prevent a constitutional crisis or do what he had to do to say no to Trump. Some of the, these people will not say no to Trump. So just to say that they're all the same and we just have to win is false. You can't tell you can't tell people that when we've already seen that's not the truth. There are certain folks on the right and certainly on the left, too, that will watch this democracy burn just to get their way. And we've seen, on the other hand, that there are folks who are very partisan, maybe very ideological, but they know where to draw the line when it comes to making sure that this democracy does not burn. And if we don't have the ability the discernment to see the difference or to care about the difference, then shame on us because there is a difference. I'll let you take us out. Yeah. I, I just think if in one case, and I, it just keeps coming to my mind uh, that governor's race in Pennsylvania, I mean, cause Pennsylvania is Pennsylvania. Uh, it always plays a big role in presidential elections. And if the governor of Pennsylvania ends up being one of these folks, and we know that it is because of this strategy, not on the part of the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, but the Democratic Governors Association uh, and other Democratic funders. Uh, I mean, that that is just unthinkably bad. Uh, and even if it's just that one case, even though I'm pretty sure it won't be just that one case, because there are a lot of races uh, that folks have gotten involved in. They got involved in this governor's race in Illinois. Um, and and got their Republican through. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But it is a dangerous, dangerous game. And I think it's shameful that folks are playing it. Yep. Folks are playing with fire. If you care about democracy, then you've got to care about democracy more than just your party winning. And apparently people don't get that difference. Well, thank you for joining us. As always, you know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing and neither faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom. kingdom.